opportunity to come and to sing and worship. God, we're so thankful that despite our brokenness and the sin and the stain that is on our lives, that God, you, you have allowed yourself to be broken so that we could be made whole. That you allowed yourself to bleed so that we could be cleansed. God, we're so thankful for that this morning. And it's so easy to take for granted the simple aspect of just coming to church and to just thinking that this is not important, to think that it's just something we do, to think that it's just one thing on the checklist that we're just ready to get over with. And God, I pray that you would remind us this morning of how how much you have given so that we can do the very thing that we're doing right now. It's not just about forgiveness of sin. It's not just about salvation. It's not just about a work that's been done in the past. But God, it's about the work that still needs to be done. It's about the work that you can do here and now if we open ourselves up and we let you in and we let you have your way with us. And God, I pray that you would take these broken vessels and that you would heal them and mend them and reforge them into exactly what you want us to be. And help us not to fight you. Help us not to resist, but God, to just lay ourselves down at your feet and say, God, take me and use me however you want to. Lord, we need you today, and we ask that you would be here, but we also pray for our brothers and sisters, and God, I specifically pray for Mr. Henry today, that you would be with him, that you would be with his body as he's in pain, but God, more importantly, that you would be with his spirit in the coming days, help him to maintain his confident and steadfast hope in you. Jesus, we pray for Mr. Rogers. He's having his procedure in the morning. God, just touch his body and be with him. And Lord, we pray for the Bonner and the Reynolds family. As they've lost another loved one this week, we just ask that you be with them and comfort them during this time. Lord, we are once again reminded of how temporary we are. So God, I pray this morning that you would speak to all of us. That we would acknowledge that we are here but for a short season. And there are some things that need to be done in our life. And God, I pray that we would allow you to do them. And that God, we would allow you to use us. Lord, we love you today. We thank you so much. And we ask that you would speak and move during this time. We love you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I know I say this about every week in my letters that I send out, but 
it really does seem like time just disappears. Uh, this is our last sermon with the Jericho series, and today's title of the sermon is, is that every little thing matters. And I think as people, as Americans, I think with our schedules, I think with our responsibilities, a lot of times we get caught in this aspect of weighing things out, really contemplating what's important, what's not important, what needs to be done, what can be put off, what can wait. And we begin to just value things and devalue things. And a lot of times when it comes to God, I think it's really important to remind ourselves that every little thing matters because we can just kind of get caught up in that routine of just looking at things and just like, well, I went to church or I read my Bible or I prayed or I did this or I did that. And so because I did that, it'll be okay if I don't do this. And I just want to remind us this morning that, you know, when it comes to serving the Lord, I think it's really, really important to remind ourselves that every little thing matters. And in fact, when it comes to God, it's probably the things that we would look at and think that aren't that big of a deal that God probably values the most. And this kind of takes us back to that whole point last week. Anybody remember point number one from last week? I got one dollar for one point from last week, if anybody can remember. Nobody? Y'all stink. Y'all stink. Timmy asked if you served a God who was powerful and you... Yeah. <laughs> Obedient? Ah, there you go. She got it. Come on, come on. You got to meet me halfway. If I got to be on camera, you got to be on camera. All right, so obedience. Like you think about something as simple as the aspect of just being obedient for God to just want us to do what he's asked us to do and how important that is and how it's more important than all the other stuff that he asked us to do. So like, you know, when he meets with Moses on Mount Sinai and he gives the law and he gives all the laws, which are like hundreds of laws, and he talks about the sacrifices and the offerings and all that stuff. And then it says throughout scripture multiple times, he would rather you be obedient than to offer sacrifices and offerings. And we, we miss that. And you think about it as a parent, if you could get your, like from, birth, from the moment your child is born, if you could get them to do one thing for you and you said, if I could ask my child for one thing <clears throat> and this is the only thing they'll give me for the rest of their life, what would you ask them to do? What would you ask of them? And, and literally, if you could just get them to be obedient to what you ask them to do, what you tell them to do, life for them and for you would be much more simple, wouldn't it? They would be very safe. They would be much wiser they would be much better off because when kids get the opportunity to just kind of start making their own decisions that don't work out very well sometimes, does it? I know it didn't for me. But obedience is important. And as our Father in heaven, who's created all things, who knows all things, calls us to be obedient, you better understand in your life that it's probably the little things sometimes that we tend to overlook can be the most important to him that we may not value because we don't look at things with the same eyes that God does. And in today's scripture and, and the sermon points, you kind of see this, this repetition, and it's going to be like a couple of weeks ago. You remember how we just jumped around in a lot of different passages of scripture for each point because we're covering a lot of scripture, but we're covering one story. And so I want to make it 
try to make it as short as possible. We're going to start out in Joshua 6, and we're actually backtracking a little bit from where we were last week. <clears throat> but this is Joshua 6, verses 17 through 19. And these are the instructions for the people of Israel. So last week we talked about the people of Israel having the victory in Jericho. You know, they, they came marching in, the walls come tumbling down. And they have victory, and they win. They've done everything that God asked them to do. They were obedient, right? They were obedient. And so in this, let's look at some of the directions, some of the things that God specifically said before they went into the city and conquered the city and did all the marching and blowing of the trumpets and everything. So let's read verse 17 together. It says, Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Now, we talked about the little things, right? So pay really close attention to the passages of Scripture we're reading. Because it's not like God just says, hey, I just want you to destroy all this stuff because I don't want you to have it. Because a lot of times as people, we get this idea, of, well, God doesn't want me to do this because he doesn't want me to be happy. Or he doesn't want me to do this because he doesn't want me to have fun. Or he doesn't want this because of this. And we rationalize things from our perspective and what we can see in the moment. And we attribute that to God and we limit God in the scope of what we can see and understand. But God gives these specific instructions and he says... Destroy everything as an offering to the Lord. This is an act of worship. What they're about to do is an act of worship. This is going to be an offering. And then he says, Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be spared, for she protected our spies. So in the midst of God saying that everything in Jericho belongs to me, it's going to be an offering to me, he spares Rahab and her family so that the men, the spies, can honor their promise to her. You remember how we talked about how important it was for us to keep our word, to keep our promises, and that we'll be held accountable for that? So in the midst of this, as God is claiming what belongs to him, he's still creating the atmosphere for us to honor him and serve him in multiple facets. So everything can be given as an offering to him and be destroyed like he wants it to, and Rahab can be spared so that our word can be kept, which is honoring to the Lord. God's facilitating all this in this moment. And notice that the offering that the people of Israel are about to give, they didn't do anything for. They didn't work. They didn't earn this. They didn't earn these things. They didn't knock down the walls of Jericho. They just marched around and blew their trumpets and yelled. And a three-year-old can do that. So the people of Israel did nothing. God is facilitating the offering. He's just asking that the people of Israel give this back to him. Verse 18. Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction, or you yourselves will be completely destroyed. So God lays it out perfectly clear. If you do this, if you go against me, you will be completely destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. So when we talk about the camp, this is the whole nation. This is all the people of Israel, because they're still camping. They haven't settled down anywhere yet. Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought into his treasury. So everything in Jericho is either going to be destroyed, except for Rahab, because she's going to be the fulfillment of the promise. And then you have these select few items that are very valuable that, that God has set apart for himself that's going to be brought into his treasury. 
and it's going to be used in his service and the worshiping of him for, for the future, okay? So everything about it is for God. And he clearly lays this out. And as we're talking about this this morning, when we say the little things matter, you better believe with all that you are that every little thing matters. And you better believe with all that you are that obedience matters because he clearly lays out what's going to happen if we're not obedient. And he simply just asks these people of Israel, it's like, just keep doing what I'm telling you to do. You've done everything I've asked you to do so far. You crossed the Jordan River like I asked you to. The priests were where they were. They carried the ark how they should. People marched around. You were silent. You marched around the city for six days. On the seventh day, seven times. You waited. You were silent. You yelled when you were supposed to yell. The walls came crumbling down. I spared Rahab's house. I let you fulfill your promise to her to keep you in good standing. I I facilitated everything. Just keep being obedient to me is the message that you see. And then today as we study this, we're, we're looking at the part of the story that we don't kick down the children's church because it's not a fun part of the story. See, it's great. The kids know that the walls come crumbling down. They don't really know what happens once they go inside the city and they begin to do all the things that God has told them to do, the, 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 the ugly things like killing all the people and all the children and all the adults and all the animals and Wiping everything out and doing what God said, because that's the ugly part of the story. We don't, we don't kick that down to them. And then we don't kick it down to them what happens whenever they don't be obedient to the Lord, because that's what we're studying today. So let's skip down to Joshua chapter 7, and we're going to look at the first couple of sentences in verse 1. But Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. Who violated the instructions? Israel. A man named Achan had stolen some of the dedicated things. Who stole the stuff? Achan. Who violated the instructions? Israel. You need to keep track of that. So the Lord was angry with the Israelites. Who was the Lord angry with? Israel. Who stole it? Aiken, point number one, disobedience contaminates everyone. If you've been in the church any amount of time, I guarantee you you've heard a sermon on this, and you've heard a sermon how sin affects other people. But one of the most American things that we have in the church is the fact that we have this attitude of my relationship with God is personal. And I can tell you even from being a pastor that there's not many people who is like even willing to have spiritual conversations with me who claim to be Christians because we perceive spirituality and our relationship with God as this personal thing, like nobody's allowed. And then we have this attitude of my decisions are my decisions. My body's my body. This is my sin. I accept consequences. This doesn't affect you. It has nothing to do with you. But all that is a complete lie from our enemy. And you can tell yourself whatever you want to. But rule number one, and this is Plumbers 101. I don't know where our plumbers are today. But it flows downstream. Right? Y'all know what it is? We talk about it a lot. It's a good uh, analogy for sin. But it flows downstream. And so if you're sitting here this morning, I'm going to pick on the older people for a second. You're a grandparent. You're a parent. You're, you're an adult. You need to understand that you may have the choice and you may do what you do and it may be your choice and nobody can 
can sway you otherwise. But you need to understand the consequences of your sin will affect and contaminate everyone in your life. It will flow downstream. Naturally, it will flow downstream. That means your spouses, your children, and not just your family, but your brothers and sisters, your co-workers, and if you're a boss, your employees, if you're an employee, it'll affect your boss because everything in your life that you do will affect the people around you whether you want it to or not. As, as much as we would not like to admit it, it very much will. If you're sitting here today and you're young and you think, okay, well, that's just a good thing for the parents because let me, let me tell you something. Sin is way worse than the other stuff because the other stuff flows downstream, but sin flows upstream. And then it finds all the tributaries and all the things that feed into it, and it goes out to it as well. And how many parents can testify this morning about sitting there and worrying to death about what your kid is out doing at any given moment in time, especially whenever they leave your home for the first time and they can drive and they can make their own decisions and they can do their own things. And you're just like sitting beside the phone, hoping and praying you don't get the call that every other parent prays they never get. Our sins will affect the people around us whether we want them to or not. No matter what it is, no matter what you do. And likewise, all the wrong things we do will affect everyone. Likewise, the good things and the consequences from the good will affect our family as well. And so if you're a young person, you need to understand every good choice you make will be a blessing and benefit to your parents and your family and your siblings and everyone around you will bear the weight of the things that you choose to do and choose not to do, whether they're good or bad, sinful or not. You with me this morning? You can't escape it. It contaminates everybody. And this is a perfect example of Scripture where Achan, this man, he, he, he sees these things that he wants and he sins and he takes them and it affects everyone. And our relationship with God is, is, is no different. And even as a church sitting here this morning, and you think, well, what I do in the privacy of my own home is my decision, and it doesn't affect anyone here at this church. You know what happens whenever we sin? Well, the truth is, is that usually after we sin, we're not proud of it, and we feel the guilt, and we feel the shame, and then we don't want to air out our laundry for everyone to see, so we like to just tuck it away and hide it, and we bury that thing, or things. And we don't really deal with it properly because, you know, the first instinct of a sinner is to hide. You go back to the Garden of Eden and you look at Adam and Eve. And when they sinned and they partook of the fruit, what did they do? They went and hid. And God called their name and he knew where they were and he knew exactly what they had done. But he still gave them the opportunity to fess up to it. And for most of us, we sin, we're ashamed of it, we, we, we take it, we hide it, and we bury it, and we just tote it around with us. And we carry it with us, and wherever you go, in relationships, in, in your workplace, and you come to church, and you bring it with you. And you don't mean to, it's not like you're purposely carrying this thing around, but it is very much yours, and it's attached to you, and it will follow you wherever you go. And it will contaminate everybody that you come into contact with whether you want it to or not. And the people that you're sitting around today, you look, I want you to look at one another this morning. There are people in this room, one of the things I hear about in our church a lot here lately is, I don't know anybody anymore. There's a lot of new people now. You may not know these people, 
but you should get to know them because the sins that's going on in their life or they're honoring the Lord in their life will affect you in one way or the other. And as we said with our new member this morning, to understand that our decisions, our personal worship of Christ will affect the corporate worship of Christ whether we want it to or not. Our sin can hinder the outpouring of the Holy Spirit inside the body of Christ here at our church. What you do behind closed doors that you think no one else knows and no one else matters, and it won't affect anyone, it very much will because God knows. He always knows. And God is not going to pour out His Spirit and He's not going to pour out His blessing as long as there's sin. Because the sin needs to be dealt with. Our instinct, our natural instinct, is to hide it, to conceal it, just like Adam and Eve. They run, they hide, they conceal their nakedness. God's purpose is to bring it forth, to call it to account because it needs to be dealt with. So Joshua chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. Let's read this. So Joshua sent some of his men from Jericho to spy out the town of Ai, east of Bethel, near Bethaven. And when they returned, they told Joshua, there's no need for all of us to go up there. It won't take more than two or 3,000 men to attack. Since there are so few of them, don't make all of our people struggle to go up there. So approximately 3,000 warriors were sent. But they were soundly defeated. And the men of Ai chased the Israelites from the town gate as far as the quarries. And they killed about 36 who were retreating down the slope. And the Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. So point number two, you need to understand that God will hold us accountable. Now up until this point, the people of Israel had done everything that God had asked them to do. They were obedient, and everything went according to the exact plan of God. But as they went into Jericho... And as they crawled over the crumbled walls and they went in, they started doing their business. There's this man named Achan who sees these things that he just has to have. And he wants them for himself and he takes the things that were set apart for God for himself and he brings sin into his life and into the people of Israel. And it's in this moment where the people of Israel goes and they think, now now, now think about this. They believe with all that they are that they're still being obedient to the Lord. They have done everything exactly how they were supposed to, and they're very confident in that, right? Because as we're serving the Lord and we're honoring Him, should we be confident in our walk with Him? Yes, we should. We should be. There should be a confidence in the Lord. If you're doing the things that God has asked you to do, there shouldn't be a fear in your life. There shouldn't be a dread or this anxiousness in your life. You should be at peace with where you are, with the expectation that God will be with you in what you're doing. And the people of Israel move into this next phase of, okay, we're going on to the next one. Jericho went great. We did what God wanted us to. We're going up here, and it all turns to, you know what? And you need to understand this morning that God will hold us accountable. And God allows the people of Israel to be overcome by a group that should have never given them a fit. Jericho considered impossible to conquer, was brought down and conquered like that by men blowing trumpets and screaming. And then the small king and his army should have been overtaken with just a few thousand men and they conquered the men of Israel, killed 36 of them 
And now the people of Israel have this fear in their life. You, you talked about fear set in on them and their hearts were melting. You, you remember the people of Jericho feeling that way? And Rahab said, everyone here is, is living in fear. We're, we're, we're just melting away because we're so terrified at the stories we've heard and what we know God is going to do through you. And now that spirit is on the people of Israel. You need to understand that Joshua or God is going to hold us accountable. God is not going to allow you to go through this life and live in his blessings while you're living in sin. And this is really hard because there's some of you here this morning that you know scripture very well. You know exactly what God expects of you. You've known for a long time. You, you know what the Bible says. You know his word. You know. And with that knowledge comes the great expectations of God that he has on us to live up to those requirements. So if you're young and you're sitting here this morning and you don't know the Bible that well, and maybe you're, you're figuring this thing out, I want you to understand. It's not like God just expects you to be perfect all of a sudden without the knowledge, but the people of Israel knew exactly what they were supposed to do. And because they knew, God expected them to do it. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you know what God wants you to do and you're not doing it, yes, you should be fearful. You should expect for God to hold you accountable. The fact that God wants to hold you accountable means that he loves you and he cares for you and he wants you to bring you back to himself. But don't be terrified this morning thinking of, I mean, I don't know, am I doing what God wants? We should not live our life in fear of, oh my gosh, if I move the wrong way, God's going to strike me dead. But we should live our life with a respectful fear of the Lord of understanding of he's going to hold us accountable. He expects a great deal out of us. And just as a parent who loves their child and holds their child accountable for the expectations they have on their life, God does the same thing with us. And we should be thankful for that. Let's skip to chapter, or chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. Because now that they've been conquered, Joshua and the people of Israel, they're confused. They don't know what's going on. They've torn their robes. They're lying on the dust and they're crying out. <clears throat> and guess what they're saying? Why? God, why did you do this? Why did you let us cross the Jordan River to be consumed and conquered by these, these small people. It would have been better for us to just have stayed on the other side of the Jordan. And who does that sound like? It sounds like their mamas and daddies. Whenever they came across the Red Sea and they went into the desert and they were wandering around and they sent the spies over for the first time and said, we can't do this. Why did you bring us out here into the desert to die? Why did you do this? And this same attitude and the same fear has done fell on the people of Israel. And in chapter 7, verses 10 to 11, as they're on the ground, as they're crying out to the Lord, and they're asking him, why, why, why? God says to Joshua, get up. Why are you lying on your face like this? Israel has sinned and broken my covenant they have stolen some of the things that I commanded must be set apart for me. And they have not only stolen them, but have lied about it and hidden the things among their own belongings. Point number three, we must make it right. 
You know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago as they were getting ready to cross the Jordan River. And Joshua had to circumcise all the men because none of the men had been circumcised. Like there's this understanding of the responsibility of there's some expectations by God on our lives. And there's just a necessity that we have in our life to make it right. That we have to be where God wants us to be. We have to do the things that God wants us to do. And God looks at Joshua and looks at the people of Israel and is like, look, I appreciate that you're on your face and you're on your hands and knees and you're just whining and groveling in the dust, but get up and make this thing right. This is what's wrong and it needs to be made right. And we forget that a lot of times. We, we, we just think that like maybe we can just sweep this under a rug or forget about it. It's like, no, God wants us to make it right. And there are times that we just have to put on our big boy and big girl pants and acknowledge that we've screwed up. You know, as people, we're really good about this. We're really good at coming along situations in our life when things aren't what we want them to be. And maybe we're sick or health issues or we lose someone or something bad happens. We say, God, why? It's the first thing we do is we ask why. Why? God, why would you, let, why would you turn your back on me? Why would you allow this to happen? Why would you do this? Why would you do that? And if you look at Scripture... And you think about the only person in Scripture that really had a good reason is to, to say, God, why, was Job. And in that really long, drawn-out book of Job, after about 40-something chapters of Job and his friends whining and arguing with each other, it gets really monotonous after a while. And he's asking why, and he's complaining. He's saying, I haven't done anything. Why is God doing this to me? God finally reveals himself to Job, and Job's like, mm -mm, I'm not saying anything else. Like, yeah, I haven't done anything, but whatever you decide is good enough for me because now I've seen you and I'm terrified to say anything else. And there's not a single one of us in this room who is without sin who God would look at us and say, look, that's the finest man, that's the finest woman in all the earth. They're completely righteous and they've never done anything against me. And anything that comes in our life, we almost say, God, why would you do this? Why would you let that happen? Why would you do this? And we always fail to acknowledge the simple fact of, God, I don't like what's going on, but whatever it is, I'm sure I deserve it. We fail to take responsibility and acknowledge that maybe God is allowing this to happen because he wants to bring our attention to something that needs to be dealt with and be made right. And he tells the people of Israel, get up, get off your face, quit sniveling in the dirt and do what I've asked you to do. Someone has sinned. This needs to be taken care of. There needs to be confession. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be submission. And there needs to be obedience. These are the things that God requires from us. So let's skip on to verses 20 through 21. And leading into this verse, there's this whole thing where they bring out all the people of Israel. And God begins to select... The tribe, because no one confesses. No one actually says, hey, I did this. This is why this happened. So they select a tribe, and then they select a clan, and then they select a family, and then finally they come to this guy named Achan. And this is where we are in verse 20 and 21. So Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. Among the plunder I saw a beautiful robe from Babylon. 200 silver coins, a bar of gold weighing more than a pound. I wanted them so much that I took them. And they're hidden in the ground beneath my tent with the silver buried deeper than the rest. 
And it sounds so dirty, and it sounds so ugly when we're reading it, but if you do the math, it's about $32,000 worth of gold and about $5,000 worth of silver. And so I dare to say that if any of us came across $37,000 in cash in the midst of chaos and death, that we may not be tempted to take it and store it somewhere for a rainy day. I think we'd all probably be like, eh, might not exactly be telling the truth. And Achan sees what most of us would really love to have in any given moment in time, and he takes it. He says, I saw this, and I just had to have it. The point number four is, is we got to confess. And I want to let you in on a little secret this morning. Achan did not confess. There's a difference between confessing guilt willingly and coming clean with it, and there's a difference between admitting guilt after you've been found to be guilty. And Achan sit back, and he let God go through this whole selection process of identifying the tribe, the clan, the family, and eventually it came to him. And finally, when Joshua said, Achan, give God the glory and admit what you've done, he says, yes, I sinned. He didn't confess. But I want you to understand that in your life, there's this, there's this desire for God that God has for us to confess our sin to Him. And not only confess it to Him, but also confess it publicly sometimes. Now, there's some things that's probably it would be best not to be shared with you know, the entire world. And for the betterment of, of people in your life, it might be best to just like keep it under wraps as best as you can. But for the most part, like sin needs to be confessed and dealt with it really in a public manner. And there goes the attitude that people have of, well, my relationship with God is personal. My spirituality is personal. It's like, no, it's not. Because you look at what Achan did. Achan thought that what he took was very personal, but yet 36 innocent men died in battle because of what he had done. And now God's favor had been removed from the entire people of Israel in the sense of fear and questioning, and now this negative attitude of, of wanting to go back across the Jordan River had set in on all the people. See, there's a need in our life to repent. And you look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, let's go back 40 years. As they're at Mount Sinai, and God has given Moses the law, and God presents himself to Moses. And look at what it says. The Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him. And he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. You need to notice that God wants to be identified as a God of compassion and mercy. He wants to have mercy and compassion on you. That's what he wants to be known for. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Wonderful qualities that we all want to attribute to God. And those are the qualities from God that I think we would all like to experience, right? And he says in verse 7, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. So if we're obedient... And we follow the Lord and we do what He's called us to do and we do the little things and we serve Him. He lavishes unfailing love to a thousand generations. 
Do you understand that like when God looks at the people of Israel, and a lot of people have problems with this, when you look at the Israelites as a whole, as a nation, there's a lot of things that they do that probably isn't very pleasing to the Lord anymore. But God is still with them, and God still carries them to a certain extent because of his promises to Abraham a thousand generations ago. And God will do that because of his promise to Abraham. And we have to understand what that means. But then you keep reading. And he says, But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. And we have to understand that every decision we make, every sin that we allow to creep into our life and that we act on, will affect us, it will affect our family, and it will affect our children, even to the third and fourth generations. God is not going to forget about it. If you sweep it up, if you hide it, you may think it's gone, but God does not forget about it, and He holds it accountable. And you can't ever forget that we serve a God who wants to forgive us, but He's very much a just God who will very much hold us accountable if we do not confess our sins to him and allow him to forgive us and lead us back to himself. But we've got to be willing to do that. So, let's skip to verses 24 and 26. It says, Then Joshua and all the Israelites took Achan, the silver, the robe, the bar of gold, his sons, daughters, cattle, donkeys, sheep, goat, tent, and everything he had, and they brought them to the valley of Accor. Then Joshua said to Achan, Why have you brought trouble on us? See, Achan still, in the midst of this, thinks, This is just me. I'm sorry. I wanted it. But Joshua looks at him and says, You brought trouble on us. The Lord will now bring trouble on you and all the Israelites stoned Achan and his family and burned their bodies. They piled a great heap of stones over Achan, which remains to this day. That is why the place has been called the Valley of Trouble ever since, so the Lord was no longer angry. And something in this passage you need to understand is that even the gold and, and the silver and the robe that was meant for the Lord, it was no longer useful to him. It got thrown in the valley with Achan and his family, and it was burned and destroyed as well, and then buried. So point number five is, God expects us to purge. And this is the very difficult part of the passage that we have a hard time with, because people always say, well, I thought God is just, and I thought He is merciful, and I, I, th I thought He was forgiving, and He is for people who are willing to confess and repent and submit themselves to Him. But when you read this story, and yeah, it sounds harsh, and man, his wife and his kids, how much did they have to do with this? I don't know. And I can't answer that. I can't tell you that. But I can tell you this. I know that you're probably at home, and we're making decisions in our own life that are very much affecting our children and our kids, and they don't have a say-so in what it is that you're doing, but it's very much affecting them. And it will affect them for generations to come, for their entire lives. It will affect them the way that they raise their kids. And if we're not mindful of that, we're being foolish. And so as all this is brought to this valley and burned, 
So many people have a really hard time with this because this is the ugly passages of Scripture where it's like, man, I thought God was merciful and just and forgive. And they can confess like, no, he didn't confess. Let me remind you of some things that has happened along this journey this morning uh, of the attitude of Achan in this. Number one, his sin caused 36 innocent men to die in battle that shouldn't have died. Those were families those men suffered and died. They had families who were left behind who's never going to have that loved one return home again because of what he did. The second one is it brought the fear back into them and it created that attitude of them, that spirit of fear that says, we want to go back across the Jordan. Why did you bring us across? They begin to question God. And that's where their parents were 40 years ago. And you thought that they would have overcome it, but that one sin and the one thing that God says, nope, not going to bless this, I'm removing myself, and then the fear sweeps in and they fall right back into the trap that their parents were in. Achan did that. And he never confessed. And in fact, Achan did not even believe in God enough, number one, to do what God had told him to do, to set all that stuff apart for himself, but he didn't believe in God enough. He said, no, I'm going to take this for me because I want it. i got to have it. But he also didn't believe in God enough that God could pick him out of the crowd. And this wouldn't be the first time that God had judged the people of Israel in the wilderness. There were actually a couple of times where God took the people, he separated them out, and he punished and killed large groups of people in the wilderness according to their sins and what they had done in their rebellion. And Achan just sits back. And he thinks, well, the Lord probably won't pick me. This is probably all just a sham. They won't, they'll never know. They'll never know it was me. It's just a sham. And then all of a sudden his tribe gets picked. Ah, just luck. I mean, one out of 12 is not bad. And then his clan gets picked. Ah, it's not that bad. And then his family gets picked from the clan. And then finally his name gets picked. And then this whole time, Achan's just sitting there. And with that type of attitude, I guarantee you, he would have let anyone else in Israel take the fall for him, hoping that the Lord was going to pick the wrong person and that he would be spared and get to keep what he had stolen. He never confessed. He never repented. He never humbled himself to the Lord. It was all brought forth. And finally under the encouragement of Joshua to eventually admit his guilt once it was all said and done and he had been chosen anyway. The man's heart was filled with rebellion against God from beginning to end. And when you talk about purging and how God expects us to purge, never forget all the passages in the New Testament that call us as believers to hold our fellow believers accountable in our faith in our worship, and in our morality. And there's so many passages in the New Testament that encourage others to cast them out of the body. Like if they're going to live in sin, if that's what they're going to do, you cast them out until they're willing to repent and come back and submit themselves to the authority of Christ and to the authority of the church. And this morning as you sit here, this is a very harsh passion passage of scripture I mean, this is one of those that a lot of people have trouble reading but don't make any mistake about it that when God asks us to do something when he calls us to do something he very much expects us to 
And it doesn't have to be written in Scripture. There could be some of you here this morning, you know that God has spoken to you, He's convicted you about something, He's led you to do something, and if you are sitting here and you're just sitting on it and you're bearing it and you're not doing what God has called you or asked you to do, you're living in sin. And you might be the only one of us who knows it, but you're not the only one that it's affecting. And one of the greatest desires that I have for this church and our community is to experience a true revival. And it's never going to happen as long as there's sin in the camp. God is not going to pour out His Spirit on a group of people that are willingly living in sin or willingly keeping sin buried beneath them because they're ashamed. We've got to get to a point in our life where we're confessing, we're repenting, and we're submitting to our Father in Heaven because that's what He wants from us. It's the little things. And all the other stuff like going to church and reading scripture and praying and all that stuff, that's just extra. But he wants you to be obedient to his voice, to his word, and to his voice. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for another beautiful day, for another opportunity to worship you. We pray that you'd be with our church, be with every individual, and God, help us all to serve you and be obedient to you. We love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.